All right, so um, welcome everyone. Uh, this is yet another uh, film roundtable. Thank you for coming out and spending some time with us as you have over and over again. Um, this is episode number nine uh, for those of you out there. Um, also, anyone wants to catch up uh, <clears throat> uh, back on uh, any of our back episodes, please at filmroundtable.org in the vault. Everything is there, you can go back and uh, access all of our back episodes. Um, but today, everybody, I've got two very dear friends of mine. Um, this can be considered my filmmaking family, these two gentlemen that you see in front of you. Um, we've got writer-director James Gray, who is James? Yeah, there Hello. goes Mr. Gray. And uh, we've got my good friend, Academy Award-winning producer, Mr. Anthony Katagis. Anthony, how are you, sir? Okay. Hey, brother, how are you doing? All right. Um, listen, I'm glad to have you both on here. Um, I want everyone out there, since this is kind of a Zoom and they don't realize how many people we have out there watching, I want to give a little round of applause for the two of you in the virtual space. Thank you for coming here and attending one of our film roundtables. Um, now, everyone who's been following us, as you always know, before we begin, um, we always like to hold a moment of silence. Um, and a lot of this has to do with uh, you know, this all started as the COVID lockdowns began. People in our industry, this was the first time that we were all put on ice together. So it gave a lot of us a chance to come together and discuss different aspects of the filmmaking process. Um, so not to lose sight of that, um, we like to talk about the numbers. We are up to 704,000 worldwide deaths as of two hours ago when I just checked the numbers. 160,000 of those are here in the United States of America. Um, also, um, as the protests continue in the streets for some social change um, here in the US and in other places of the world, we would also like to honor all of our black and brown brothers and sisters, as well as the First Nation brothers and sisters and everyone that's out there um, protesting for social justice whose lives have been changed or altered um, due to acts of violence, um, whether at the hands of the police or the hands of anyone else in this world. Um, this is what a lot of people are standing up for, for the world to take notice. So before we go any further, I just wanna hold a moment of silence here for everyone. Thank you. Okay, thank you, everyone. Uh, we've, we've come to learn that that's a very powerful part of our film roundtable here is just uh, making that statement known um, ahead of time for everyone that's out there and follows us. Um, so now, the two gentlemen I have here at hand, as I said before, I came into this saying that the, this is my filmmaking family, and that is no exaggeration. Um, we've been together now for over 15 years, the three of us, um, and Anthony and I have worked on five of James Gray's movies, uh, starting with We Own the Night, um, Two Lovers, The Immigrant, Lost City of Z, and most recently, Ad Astra. Um, so this is, uh, this is I, I know James, the first question I wanna throw to you is, well, you, I always say that, you know, movies are like children, and they're all very different, but these five movies that we've all worked on together, in, in, in your mind's eye, like, you know, 
which one of these from not from the quality of the movie or the story, but from an experience standpoint stands out the most to you? Oh, Doug, what are you starting with a nuclear bomb? Uh, <laughs> well, I would say, actually, I can answer that. This, is, this has nothing, by the way, to do with quality. Um, because I'm certainly very proud, for example, of Lost City of Z. I think that I'm, I'm very proud of that film and what, what you guys and, and what we did there. But I would say that from a, a sort of like a personal comfort, fulfillment standpoint, I would say Two Lovers and the Immigrant were the two films that came closest to fostering an environment for sort of maximizing creativity. So I would say those two films, which I, I weirdly view as a kind of a piece, you know, I don't know why, they're nothing alike, but I think of them as, as, as one long experience of wonderful happiness. Yo, that's, that, that, that's interesting. And, and it is interesting that you chose those two and like, you know, we actually all have our thoughts. Anthony, what would you say of the five you know, from an experience standpoint for you? Listen, the, the truth for me is a little different. Uh, there's a, a piece of every film that we've done together that I, 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 can't, um, I, I, I can't say is, is you know, each, each film represents a really important experience to me and always has. And each film I've used in very personal, special ways as building blocks as a filmmaker. So to rank them or to put one on top for me is extremely difficult because as hard as films are, and, and there's no secret about filmmaking, all films have challenges. And sometimes those challenges uh, fall in the category of dreams or nightmares. But at the end in my process, Fortunately, and I think it is fortunate, I leave those experiences in a way where they're like little, they're like little bridges and they, all, and they all connect. Now, it would be easy for me to say, We on the Night holds a special place for me because we came together, all of us. That's where Jimmy and I met. Um, there's a different part of this segment or story, Doug, how you and I met, which was long before We on the Night. And in a lot of ways for me as a filmmaker, that satisfied a lot of challenges. And then of course the immigrant, you know, Jimmy and I share, um, you know, something special. Our, both our grandparents actually made a very similar voyage. We actually, I think Jimmy, I have this correct. We think our grandparents came over possibly at, roughly at the same time to Ellis Island. 2021 which, to 23. Exactly, and, and, and to stand there together all of us and James and I, especially because of what I just said, on those steps where you actually see amazing. the footprints. It's amazing. So I can't, that movie, for that reason and for other reasons that we could talk about, really, I, I, I think of often, but how can I not think of going to space and how can I think of going to the jungle? I'm blessed. And I'm blessed because of the films that we've made together. Uh, let me just say this, 100%, I, I, had, I learned hugely of those other experiences. The reason I, I wouldn't say something like Lost City of Z or Ad Astra, they're, they're, I, I have a you know, sort of different set of criteria maybe than, than you will because of our different jobs. And when you're directing a scene and you have to have basically something interesting happen between two people. I mean, the essence of a scene, what's a scene? A scene is one character wants something from the other. That's you boil it down, you get rid of everything else. That's what it means. So 
I found Z, for example, when you're trying to have a scene between two people and there's like a snake crawling up your leg that's gonna kill you, that was a hindrance to me. That has nothing to do with the movie. But as Doug can attest, when I find a scorpion on my leg, disconcerting. Um, with Ad Astra, it was Brad himself hanging from wires, you know, in a dark black box. And that has nothing to do with a movie, has nothing to do with anything. I mean, I think that it was executed wonderfully well by, the, by everybody, but it, it, it's, it's, that's a machinery thing that gets in the way of what is already a very difficult process, for me anyway, which is to create a scene that's interesting. So that's why I said those other films. It's nothing, you know, about those movies. It's not like I, they're all your children, as you say. No, 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 you're absolutely right. And in a lot of ways, I mean, for me, as Anthony said, something about We Own the White Night because it was our first experience together. That holds a special place. And then, but, you know, all of them hold a place. All of them had, you know, their own particular challenges. Um, we, you know, in uh, of several episodes back, we had Bradford Young was uh, essentially leading a discussion with Darius and myself because Bradford really wanted to get down and talk about Lost City of Z and the challenges of location shooting. And that was really amazing to have all of these, and these, these conversations come back to Darius. He had forgotten a bunch of things that occurred and went on. And as I talked about things and he was reminiscing Kind of like, you know, in a way that you reminisce about a long lost love, you know, when you realize at the time there was so much hardship, but then later on you can look back on something and romanticize it a little bit more, you know, once you start to forget about the moment by moment hardships that go on in the process of filmmaking. You, you know, know, can I, can I drop a name on us for a second? Uh, but it does connect, you know, in terms of what Darius uh, Kanji did on Lost City of Z, um, I just went off and I, 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 I did my first opera and uh, I called up the director, William Friedkin, who has done many operas and done them brilliantly well. And I wanted to get his advice. And we started, the conversation started to meander and, and he started talking to me about uh, Z. And he had shot a really terrific movie, by the way, if you viewers out there haven't seen it, called Sorcerer uh, in the jungles in the Dominican Republic. And he said he had to fire the director of photography on that movie, who uh, was a guy named Dick Bush, a very established cinematographer. And he said, the jungle is where cinematographers die. That's where they die. Because as you well know, at 3 p.m. you're done. You can't shoot, the, the, the tree cover is so dense and your ability to light it is non-existent. Your ability to bounce light is non-existent. And the work Darius did is so brilliant. And I can say that the movie, I don't know if the movie's good or not, or good, what does that even mean? But I know that what he did as a cinematographer is so extraordinary. He drove me up the goddamn wall. It's so extraordinary. And I never had to think twice about the beautiful work he was doing. And hearing Friedkin talk about how impossible it was for him in the Dominican, I really came only late to appreciate how brilliant Darius's work was on that film. Anyway, that's my story. That, but, that, but, that, but that's right, from a produ producer standing just to the side and watching him work with, with no lights, just what was available <laughs> with, 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 
Doug's planning on when the sun went in, when the sun went out, where, you know, catering to as much as he possibly could, he would say, it's all about the director, Greek. It's all about the director. And then he was sitting there rating his own film and writing up camera reports like he was a mad scientist. And I'm thinking, what could he possibly be scribbling on that, that camera report? And, and remember, Jimmy and Doug, then the film goes on donkey, boat, taxi, God knows how many other means of transportation, all the way back to Bogota. And then I don't know where, how it gets to London and somehow up the block through other cabs, eight days later, the film is good. Yeah, yeah. no, we didn't get dailies on that film. We got weeklies. We, yeah, yeah. We got bi-monthlies. Bi yeah, that's, that's the thing, you know, for people to understand is like that was exactly, that was shot on film in such a hard atmosphere to actually get the film where it had to go to get processed, that that in its own, that is, a, that is a behind the scenes story on its own for hours about the, the, the absolute stress on a day-to-day -day basis. Almost every morning or day, James would come to Anthony and I go like, did the film make it? Did it make it? Did it make it? Like, because there was always a very good chance that it might not. And who, somebody had a sat phone. Was it you, Anthony? Somebody had a sat phone because the cell obviously wasn't working or was it Charles Miller? Somebody had like a sat phone. Oh, yeah, England got it. They, they got it in London. They got it. They got it. They, wait, which way? Was that yesterday? No, it was three days ago. Four days ago. No, four days ago. They got four days ago. Yeah. No, it, it was all a lie. We, we didn't know. I mean, we made, one, we made one deal with ourselves. We said, do we want to shoot film? We said that wasn't even, a, it was, of course, we want to shoot film. And we just said, let's all remind each other that we're never going to know how it goes until whenever we know. Yeah, and, but uh, computer work down there, remember? That might have saved us. Well, uh, what computer, was that? Nobody's computer. Go, you yeah. shoot digital down there. Nobody's computer was working in that deep jungle. Nobody. No, no. Uh, no and that's one of the things. That's one of the things we said. A lot. We have a lot of you know because we have a lot of cinematographers that come on here, and there's often the talk of, you know, film, digital, back and forth, and testing, and you know, for the the straight up reason, and we all said it early on, is that the digital. The, the digital sphere was untested in what we were trying to do. We knew we were going to be in terrible, harsh conditions. And, you know, film is tried and true. Film cameras and film have worked for, you know, over 100 years in very bizarre locations. So, I mean, that was a big driving force, clearly, beyond the fact that, of course, James, you love to shoot everything on film. But we all realized that, you know, that technology was battle-tested for what we had to do. So that was... We, we, that dropped, we, we dropped the camera under the water and Charlie from and Charlie from London came and put it back together and it was shooting the next morning. I yeah. And those things just, those things just didn't quit. Yeah. yeah. Something to be said about analog and that, you know, and we are seeing it more and more, you know, there is a little bit of a, you know, it's almost as if the nostalgia of vinyl and film, the vinyl making comeback and film as well. You have a lot of younger, you know, uh, filmmakers who are more and more starting to shoot with film again. You know, it's, it's becoming very interesting to see a little bit of, you know, how the ebbs and flows happen. And obviously there are certain filmmakers, James, you're in that elite category of saying, you know, I just always want to shoot on film and have been able to. So, you know, that, that, that's always been a pleasure to do that on your movies. Um, another thing I want to talk about is, is the preparation process uh, for you, James, particularly, which is, part of why we have you here and why we're all here together is, um, you know, obviously every director has a very different 
uh, process on how they like to, you know, exist in the prep cycle of production. Um, James, I'm just letting everyone know, is a very big proponent of showing movies to his key people, of dissecting cinema for the sake of the cinema we're about to embark in. Um, and James, I've always found that fascinating about you and your process. Why don't you explain to some of these aspiring filmmakers we have out there and our established ones, why you think watching some of the masters is such a key? I'll answer that by telling a, a brief story, if I may. I decided that uh, on Ad Astra that I would watch every science fiction movie that had ever been made. I decided in private, I was gonna try and watch everything. Doesn't matter how grade Z, you can always learn. I found out about a very, very bad, very boring, German silent foreign, uh, uh, a, a science fiction movie called Our Heavenly Bodies. It was made in 1925. So I decided I gotta watch this, science fiction. About one o'clock in the morning, I'm watching this. It, the movie is awful. It's interminable. It's 200 minutes of silent German 1925 cinema and I can barely get through it. There is nothing to learn or to see in this old movie. And then in the middle of this horrible movie, there's a symmetrical shot of a circular hallway in a spacecraft. And the guy walks upside down. And it was clearly what Stanley Kubrick ripped off in 2001. And I thought to myself, ah, oh, I see what you did there, Mr. Kubrick. You steal from everywhere. That's what it's there for. It's it's all of that art exists as a, as, as a kind of a treasure trove to help you express what it is you need to express. You know, this idea that you can create something original with the intention of saying, I'm going to create something original, I think is a bit misguided. If you look at the master art, the really like, let's take for example, the Beatles. If you listen to the early Beatles, it's a very interesting thing if you listen to their album, Please Please Me, which I believe was recorded in 1962. It's, a, it's, a, it's an in-between record. There are flashes of the Beatles, but they're also playing a lot of covers. They're trying to find their way. They're finding their way toward inventing a new art form. But that's okay. That's the process. You need to steal. Stealing is everything because you are part of a lineage. It's not like, you know, this idea that you're going to have, it's you don't need to watch anything else. You don't need to read any other books. You don't need to look at any other paintings. You need to listen to any other music because you are you is nonsense because you've already absorbed it. You just are not either conscious of it or you're not admitting it to the world. You're already thieving. So why not just make it blatant? Why not try to learn what works and frankly, often what doesn't work from others? That's why it exists. 
And all of it is a, is a means towards finding personal expression. The most you can get out of watching a movie is getting rid of all the things that get in the way of expressing what it is that's closest and most intimate to you. So if you can get rid, if you can find the visual objective correlative for your emotion in another piece of work, why not steal it? Nothing is original, nothing. We build on it and then we put ourselves into it and then it becomes something unique because there's only one of me, there's only one of you. It becomes unique when we absorb it fully. So I think it's about mastering the craft so that we can make art. And you can only make art after mastering the craft. It's why, you know, I just made this little movie on YouTube and you don't really know anything about them, but they always suck. It's because there's no craft involved in it. It's why great directors, John Ford's great movie started when he was 12 movies in. Martin Scorsese made his first great movie while he was pretty quick learner, maybe his third or fourth movie, Francis Coppola, maybe his fifth movie. But you, you see, you have to develop these, these, this craft. And watching other films, seeing what's done well, what you don't like, that's how to begin the mastery of craft. Does that answer your question? It, it does. And it, it, you know, it basically, a, a quote that I attribute to you all the time that I tell people is, you know, James is always fond of saying, if you're going to steal, steal from the best. You know, so I, I, that totally answers the question. I mean, I totally get that. And, you know, it's one of these things I used to watch, you know, Anthony early on in our, in our, in, in the early relationship of, of We on the Night before the advent of Netflix and streaming on demand, this was always a process of James wanting to turn to Anthony and say, let's get a 35 millimeter print of... Oh, I would still do that. Fill in the blank, and then that would become Katagas' ordeal to track down a 35 millimeter print so that we could all have a wonderful screening to review James' idea of what to research. <laughs> I would still Listen, do that if I, I could. Uh, look, I, you can, Jimmy, because I was just about to say, I hope that things change, and we know things change, but let, let's agree tonight but one thing doesn't change that we still actually do that and i want to expand upon it doug because another thing that is really exciting about working with this young fella and yourself is the photo research that we do uh, especially on the early history of photography and autochromes and simply going to study the, the oil the oil masters the painters i mean i learned too. so we much about art and and, and lighting from the trips you've taken us, James, um, and then once we've hooked up with Darius, Darius expanded upon that, but we started it together, um, working, you know, talk a little bit about that, because I think that's really interesting, you know? Well, I mean, look, part of the reason I think that cinema is such an amazing art form, and part of the reason that cinema is, became the art form of the 20th century, uh, not convinced it'll stay the art form of the 21st, but that's another conversation, which by the way, we can have here later, but is, is part of why it's so great is it's really the culmination in a sense. Look, what is the cave paintings of Lascaux? How old are they? 30, 40,000 years old? I don't even know. How, what is the difference between the cave paintings of Lascaux and Rembrandt's Nightwatch? Well, the differences are huge but it took thousands of years to get there, right? 
Music. Bach, one of the greatest music, musical minds ever. But it, it took thousands of years for the human race to develop to create that kind of magic. Within the first two or three years of sound cinema being invented, you had an absolute explosion of masterpieces. An explosion. What does that tell you? Unlike any other art form, the human race had been making cinema without the technology since the beginning. And that's called our dream, our dreams. Our dreams are like movies. And we had been doing this for thousands and thousands of years. We just didn't have the means. Look at Das Nibelungen, the Nibelungen lead by Wagner, the opera, the ring cycle by Wagner. He makes all these operas. He's reaching, he's trying to reach past the form of opera. Movies don't exist yet, but he's reaching, he's thinking to himself and almost saying aloud, what, where is that thing that I need that will answer this need that I have? Opera isn't it, but it's the only thing I got. And when you see the ring, the ring cycle, you can see, you can, you can feel Wagner reaching for something past the opera. It was the cinema. I bet he would have been a great movie director. So when we look at old masters, when we look at Rembrandt, when we look at uh, Vermeer, when we look at, oh my God, we've looked at so many. We looked at the Italians, right? Caravaggio, we looked at Zubarin, the, the Spanish too, Velasquez. What we're looking at is a long cultural history all of which leads to the movies. It's about learning what came before and being so immersed in what has come before that we can then branch out and express ourselves. It's one of the great things about cinema. So in cinema, you have painting, visual aspect, lighting, the direction of light. You have dance, how you arrange the actors in a scene, how they move with the camera. You have obviously photography, you have obviously music, right? What art form isn't covered by the cinema? It's the combination of all of this. What I should be doing is taking us all sort of the ballet. I should be taking us to the opera. I haven't done that. But uh, I've never been a big fan of ballet, which is maybe my flaw. But uh, you understand my point that the cinema is just all it is. And of course, theater, right? It involves theater as well. All it is is the combination of all these other beautiful art forms. So why not try to learn from and steal from everything? It's, it's, it's a wonderful point. It really is. It, and it's so funny when you say that about the explosion of cinema, you know, it, it, makes, it, it makes you think of that expression, right? In my mind's eye. Like when you say that, you know, the, the idea of cinema had been brewing in man's consciousness before the technology. Yeah. Since the beginning. Exactly right. Like the whole idea, you know, this is why you have a totally intimate relation with the theatrical experience in a movie, right? What's the worst thing that can happen? Guy behind you is going, hey, uh, Freddy, uh, want to get some pizza afterwards during the movie, right? You say, shut up. How can you talk during a movie? Because it violates, it's somebody waking us from our dream. Right? That intimate space that we've created, the thing that mimics most our unconscious. And somebody else is talking through our unconscious? Oh, it's a violation. And it's why the old cinema was so beautiful. You had the image projected from light 
from behind to the screen. It didn't come out of the screen. It came from behind, somewhere in the back of your mind, right? Digital, it's here. Old film projection comes from behind you. And so the whole thing was about mimicking the dream process for the human mind. It's the first art form that ever did that. Incredible. So that's why. That's beautifully said. You know, that's beautifully said. I mean, and you know, I don't, you know, obviously, Katagis and I have been around you for a long time to, you know, understand. It's so funny because, you know, as I'm getting peppered with questions from our audience, you know, there are people out there who don't know you as intimately as we do and don't understand the passion you have for this art form and how you talk about it, which is, which is, which is wonderful. It's such a special thing to hear you talk about cinema and all of the tangential aspects of it. You know, it's, it's uh, really appreciated. Um, <clears throat> what, it, it seems that there are a lot of people who know you quite well and some of the questions that are getting peppered to me because there is someone from your crew on Little Odessa who wow. is really said that the paintings you shared with us in the prep period of that film were an amazing genius play. So that's, uh, they're under anonymous. They don't have their name there, but just to let you know, there's people from all walks of your life and all of our lives who tune in. Yeah, but you know, you know what that person's talking about? I don't do that anymore. That person's talking about watercolors that I used to do. I don't do them ah. anymore. There's a reason I don't do them. Uh, and it's actually very important for the filmmakers out there, I think. If I, I, I don't consider myself a person of wisdom, that's for sure. If I had anything to impart though to people who were young filmmakers, it would be this. The reason I don't do those prep watercolors anymore, storyboard, yeah, I'll do some storyboards, some primitive stuff. Greek will know that I'll do like a drawing for him. Um, I had to reassess around actually We on the Night. I had to reassess and I think I was right to do it. The real meaning of what it means to direct a film. Because you don't do everything yourself. In fact, the closest artistic analogy would be as a conductor of an orchestra. Now the conductor doesn't run into the, you know, first violinist, take the violin and start playing. The, the job of the conductor is to coax beautiful work from the beautiful artistry of others. So what I realized was, no, I don't want my vision. And you hear directors say, I, I, I had a vision, I had a vision, I want my vision. No, 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 I don't want my vision. And you've heard me say this over and over. I want something better than my vision. And people were looking at those watercolors I did and they were giving me my vision which is great, but it's, I want better than that. So I realized people were relying on that too much. And it was very freeing to not do them anymore around We Own the Night. And, and I found that I was being surprised in a great way by the people with whom I was working. And they were surpassing my dreams. And that's, I think what our goal is, not to get exactly what we have in our head. That's well, well said, well said. That goes back to the team aspect of it.
which is Katagas. This is and, and for those of you that out there don't know, uh, James calls Anthony Katagas oh. Greek often. So he, we're having a three-way yeah. moment here amongst ourselves, which is so natural. But then there's hundreds of people out there who's like Greek. Which one? Who's the Greek? So Anthony Katagas is affecting as the Greek. Um, so here's a question I have for Anthony because this is very interesting. We both Anthony and I together working with James have made a career of making movies for James that people say, so with James. No, w with James. Thank you for the correction. With James, where people say, no, you didn't make that movie for that price. No way. Because, you know, as people out there who do or don't know, James has made a, 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 a career and a stand by not necessarily working in the studio system. And all of James's movies are independently financed. Um, and it falls upon Anthony with as much help as I can give to squeeze blood from a stone so that we can give James everything that he needs and wants. So, or I should say needs because wants is a different thing. Um, so the question is this, Anthony, for you is in your relationship with James, what is it about him that allows that to happen? Meaning that you know that, you know, we can get things done um, by the limited amount of means that we always seem to have. Well, I first want to, I think, talk about what I think a producer does, because th that baseline needs to be understood, at least how I, oh, I should just talk about how I like to approach my job, which is, I, I personally take pride in trying my best to create an environment that we can all succeed in. And I think if you go about it that way, where you're putting forth a complete whole world and environment that's nurturing, that's supportive, that's also based in some reality, I think anything is possible. I think that's part of the recipe. Another part of the recipe is what James was getting to, that it can't only be um, one person's vision all of the time because we rely, and, and part of the answer to this question of yours, Doug, is I rely, I know you rely, and, and James relies on everybody bringing their best ideas forward. So, you know, James has always been a very informed and, and practical filmmaker and, 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 you know, a partner, a real partner as, as a filmmaker. It started with We on the Night when, when he said to me, listen, Greek, if I may call you Greek, it was like minute one of our, our, our relationship. Oh, and I said, be it because you took us to a great Greek restaurant in Midtown. That's why. And you're Greek. Okay. And, I, and, and I'm Greek. And I... And we, he just, you know, he said, look, a lot of people think this movie needs to be X and this is what we have. What do you say? And as I think we were sharing some octopus and some salad and I just said, let's make the movie. And he looked at me and he said, that's what I was hoping you'd say. Do, do you have any questions? And I said, I think let's get out into the field. I have this feeling um, from this lunch and from the hours that we spoke on the phone, because we spoke a lot on the phone that, that you know you were the kind of filmmaker and, 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 and person that just had both feet grounded on how to approach um, uh, a challenge in a project. Maybe there was a little bit of a leap of faith there because I was extremely attracted to the material and the opportunity, but that quickly proved and certainly has over the last 15 years and several films is, is a reality because believe me, we've had, and I know James knows this and Doug, you play a big role in this together We've had many challenges. I mean, we went to, we've gone from Queens to, outer, to, to Saturn and back, and literally, 
And um, a lot of the times we were bumping around for the first time. It was maiden voyages. And what we did was we connected those dots by uh, sound research and aligning our uh, needs, wants, and expectations accordingly. And I really try, and I think you know this, Doug, and, and I, I encourage this with the, with the you know, young filmmakers that come in and around our, uh, our orbit is, try your best not to let no ever come out of your mouth. Well, it has to come out obviously when it needs to, but it's gotta be approached with how, you know? So you, you try to create an environment where people can succeed and you talk about how. So you don't have to have the answer. And I never often do have the answer when it first comes up. And usually, you know, it's Jimmy and you, Doug, for that matter, are never like, this is what we're doing and this is what we got to be doing and go figure it out. It's like, usually, hey, let's not all, you know, short circuit. This is kind of what we want. We throw it up on the wall. We let it sit there for as long as possible, sometimes way, way too long, letting it haunt us. Okay, can we afford it? Okay, do we know how to do it? Okay, how are we going to get around to doing it? And I think that kind of energizes us and inspires us because we, 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 we yeah, I, it, you know, it, it, you got to let the material haunt you and, and possess you. And, and, and certainly you've got to be, surround yourself with a like-minded team and, and partners. So I've been fortunate, you know, to answer the question, Doug, I've been fortunate to have people like yourself and to be doing this with a director like James, where my process and some of what I've explained kind of works quite lovely with the other key crew that join us because, you know, I, I don't remember saying no much and I don't remember us being terribly disappointed, but I do remember it always being a challenge and, um, and it's rewarding when you solve it. So I'll, I'll let James maybe try to fill in around some of that babble, but, uh, you know, I, cre I try to create an environment for us to succeed. Well, here's what I would say. Um, if you dream of becoming someday, if one dreams of becoming someday an artist, known as an artist, if I use that dirty word, uh, first one has to become, I think, a craftsman. So I've always tried to think, okay, what does it mean to become a craftsman? That means you do it. You don't use excuses to not do it. The point is to get in there, solve problems, because it's very easy to come up with a reason that it can't be done. That's the easiest thing in the world. It's very, very difficult to figure out the challenge, the answer to challenges in a way that satisfies you. But that's, that's part of the craft. So I've always thought, be a craftsman. Be a craftsman and do it and do everything you can not to fall into the rut. We said, oh, I didn't have enough money. I couldn't do it. Come up with another way to do it then. Don't let that be the thing that destroys your dream. So I think it's important for a filmmaker to be pragmatic. And the alternative is to not do it. How do you become a craftsman if you don't do it? And, and, and that's a good point, James, because, uh, you know, as producers, you know, and, 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 and obviously as a director, you, you, you feel this in a certain way. A lot, of thing come, a lot of things come through, you know, on our desk, through our eyes, cross our hearts. 
And I've always, Doug, tried to take the approach of, let's make films happen. Let's not be so smart that we're telling, we're showing everybody how films can happen and why they can't. Oh, you don't have enough money for this. Oh yeah, you must be smoking, this can't happen. I mean, what fun is that? We're, 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 we, we all want to get into the film business. So we're blessed enough to be in the film business. And I just made a decision many years ago that I wasn't going to spend my time and my few opportunities um, being such a smart aleck producer that I, I was going to tell people why things couldn't happen. I was going to take the other approach, which is, sure, why not? Let's make the movie. Let's make the picture. And, um, you know, you got to be blessed to be working with people like you two to make that happen. Well, that's all, all works of art, again, dirty word, are acts of will. They are acts of will. It, this idea, you know, part of the ease of access, where I can take my phone and make a movie, has destroyed what is very important to remember. It's not easy. It's work. Get in the trenches and make it happen. It doesn't have, ding, it's genius. Does not happen. Does not happen. Look at the first cut of a movie. It's always terrible. Any movie, it doesn't matter if it's Citizen Kane or The Godfather, whatever, terrible. It's work. It's tough. It's an act of will. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And, you know, something so comes to mind, you know, uh, I'll, I'll never forget the first time reading We Own the Night and I came across the car chase sequence in the rain. And all I kept on saying to myself is, I don't know how the hell we're going to be able to do this. It's amazing. I love everything about it. But how are we going to do this? And the more that I was able to dig around your brain and understood from the character-driven aspect of that sequence. It's not about all the cars out here and there. It's about what's happening centrally with the character. One thing that you've always emphasized, which I think is tremendous, is the idea that action for action's sake itself means nothing if it's not grounded with your character, right? If it's not character-driven. And, and that was something, because that sequence was clearly something, you know, between the three of us that was a very hard you know, talk about pin the tail on the donkey. How do we do it? Where do we do it? How can we make it happen? You know, it was a very complicated sequence with the streets in the city of New York to try and be able to get that type of access to do a car chase and create the rain towers. Um, but the one thing that you always drove point, drove home was the idea that this sequence is about what's going on with that character and the tunnel vision of that character. And it's what makes it, you know, so many people always refer to that sequence as, you know, such, such, such an amazing action sequence when it's really a sequence about character. Well, that's, if you look at uh, any of the great action sequences in movies. I mean, I remember us, I think we looked at the French Connection. But I'm, you know, you forget these things now. We looked at the French Connection on film, if I remember correctly. But part of why that sequence, for example, is so extraordinary is because the whole movie is focused on the idea that Gene Hackman's character, Popeye Doyle, is unnaturally and unhealthily obsessed with capturing Frog One. So you know, when he's chasing that subway car, he might hit the woman with the baby carriage. He's, he's unhealthily and unnaturally obsessed. And that is a true engine for the sequence. And it allows context 
to do a lot of the work. That's really what it means. You know, action is character. You know, it's like, it's like the, the two are intertwined. You know, what choices you make. It's not about how flashy it is. I mean, you could do, I, I, think, I think it's Bad Boys 2 actually, where I believe he has a truck flipping over a Ferrari uh, with its uh, spider. So it's right, it's an incredible stunt. So what? So what? Well, it means nothing. But he almost hits the woman in the baby carriage in the French Connection. And that movie is 1971 and you remember it. No, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Um, Anthony, I have a question for you that's come in here. Uh, people curious about, you know, you talked about, uh, you made a conscious decision to become that type of producer. Uh, was that something like just in your character or you saw other people doing it a different way and you're like, no, I want to be this person. Like what, what, what was the trigger for that for you? I don't know. I mean, I think it's pretty basic. I think it's a, it's a, you know, it's a competitive business and, and, and then once you can kind of get a couple of opportunities at the plate, you want, you want if you, if you're lucky enough, you're working on the types of films that work for your soul and your heart. Um, not just, you know, not that are just jobs. And James is responsible along with some other filmmakers that where these opportunities came by, I, I, I just, there was something, I guess I was, you know, whenever we're, we're sometimes too smart for ourselves in this business, I think often are. Um, I, I think I was just, you know, my instincts were, were on enough in those moments where I knew these things are something special and you want to treat them like James says, as your children. And even when they were not my films and I was line producing and there were others, people asking me to come join them. I, I, I took a, I, I took the, a, a, the only way I knew how, which is make it yours to the extent possible because your name is on it because your reputation is behind it. And because if you're trying to create an environment for the film itself, which is also by extension, the filmmaker and the crew and your partners to succeed within, you gotta, you gotta, this has gotta be really here, right? It, it, it can't exist on a piece of paper or on the end of a telephone cord or uh, in a conversation in a bar. It's gotta be what you're doing, you know? And, and, and whether you have a bunch of children or not, or whether you have a bunch of other responsibility or not, you, you, you woke up that day before you got the phone call that you wish you were making movies. And so when movies came around and the good ones, you, you just, you just got to know that that's what you got to do, I guess. You got to respect how rare it is um, and give it your fucking all because you can't, sometimes that's your only shot. And, 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 and I've been very lucky that now it's, I, I can say, I hope it doesn't end, but every movie and every good movie that I have an opportunity to be part of in any way, I go at it like that's what's going on in my life, you know, 24 seven. Um, open for business all the time because it's it's important. Um, so I don't know. I hope that answers the question because it, I had a fear that I would never get another chance to go to space or go to the jungle or or go back to Brighton Beach or like you say, you know, Wheel in the Night had several stunts that actually I, and in moments that film. I mean, I, I, you know, I got a phone call from one of our partners 
Jimmy and Doug Marcutan, and he remind he he caught he caught the movie, and someone else caught the movie and called him, so he started watching the movie, and he said, "Man, I just want to say something. We're talking about something else. How, how the hell did we make that movie? You know?" And and I said, "Yeah, you're taking me down memory lane." And you know, one thing actually, I think we're we're not we're not we're we're, we're talking a little bit about, but the whole team and would Jimmy talks about Hackman and how obsessed he was. You know, we were fortunate in some of those films, you know, to, to have uh, JP because talk about obsessed and talk about committed and talk about, you know, Incredible. creating an environment to need an actor like that, that, that gives you the commitment, the, the blind Incredible. commitment to just pull him onto set when you're ready and to, Keep them on, keep you keep on set as long as you need. Do something over and over again. That is one of the pieces of the, the fucking soup uh, that makes it possible. No doubt. Go ahead, Jimmy, because you know what I'm well, getting no, at. Well, he, no, he is really, I, 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 on We on the Night, I remember it was he and also it was Ava Mendez. You know, we talked about John Cassavetes so much before starting that film and how we were going to do the deep dive and we were gonna try and do everything we could to be as authentic as we could in the emotion of it. And, and the drive that Joaquin had and has, it inspired her and me and other actors uh, on the movie to give everything. And, you know, I owe him a lot. I mean, Mark Wahlberg is fantastic too. I just haven't worked with him as much. But the, the, the truth of the matter is, is that when you're working with Joaquin, I just remember one point where he swallowed all this anodized charcoal for the scene. And the prop yes. guy looked at me and goes, you want a charcoal, man? Bobby Green, which was Joaquin's character's name. Bobby Green is fucking hardcore, man. That dude is hardcore. And when other actors see that, they demand almost equal savage treatment an equal commitment to the authenticity of the moment. You can't really ask for more than that. That is a very generous thing that the actor can give. And that comes from Mark. It comes from Joaquin, a, an extraordinary artist. He really is. No, it's that level of greatness. It's almost like the Jordan effect where you elevate those around you because- Absolutely. You know? absolutely, absolutely, he has that. Yeah. He absolutely has that. And that is a, an unbelievably rare quality. The drive for that authenticity. Yeah. Amazing. And, and my, my point, Doug, was, you know, we're talking about what we, what we bring and what we do. And I just wanted to make sure everybody listening understands there's only so much we can all do unless, you know, in the, in the absence or, or thankfully in our case, the presence of committed. And we've had tons of committed cast members Amazing. on all of these projects. Every single one of them actually when i now think about it because we were just talking about we on a night but going to space going to the jungle our, our cast just literally was almost like unbelievable least supportive so it's charlie um, hunnam look what he did to himself yeah what hunnam did to himself on z that was fantastic yep. he was amazing yeah he, he was all in he was all in sleeping outdoors doing everything he can to be with nature he was all in I mean, he, he will admit this, you know, I'm not telling tales out of school. I think, you know, the, the, the lack of calories kind of made him a little mad. Yeah. I mean, he just was like literally starving himself. 
Yep. Yeah. Well, that, in a lot of ways, that's a testament, James. I mean, you know, you do you attract strong actors to work with you. So it's you know, anyway, there's no you know, it's not a secret. Everyone knows that you know, strong actors want to work with directors who they feel can tell the stories that they're looking to be involved in. So I think that is a lot also in the testament to, you know, how you work with the actors, having seen that for many years. Well, I'm not particularly good with actors. What I think does come through, because I really don't know how to help actors very much or very well, is I, I, I want to make, I know that it's about them. And I want to make the environment comfortable for them. That's about where it ends, but it also is where it begins. That's a big thing that I don't, I, it seems self-evident that you should do that. I'm not sure that many directors do it in cinema because it doesn't have an actor-based tradition directing for the cinema. It has a kind of more technical uh, origin. So I just think the only thing that might distinguish what it is that I can do for them is that I really, I think they're really important and I love them. And even when I hate them, I love them. You know, they're crazed, beautiful children. Uh, and that's what brings the magic. So I just think that I'm not particularly good at directing them. Now, you know, Kazan is a great actor's director, or like Francis Coppola or Marty Scorsese, or, you know, one of these kind of John Cassavetes, as we mentioned, one of these kind of guys um, who was able to achieve that. I just think I'm able to respect them enough to let them have the space. And like you say, lucky enough to have actors willing to commit in an almost ze like zealots state to the character. Yeah, that's vastly important. Um, you know, interesting thing, one of the things we delved into in one of our previous roundtables or you know, that we touched on is the idea of the pandemic that happened in 1918 for students of how our business is. Obviously, that's the last time that our business in mass did not work because like everything else, the cinemas were shut down and Hollywood itself shut down. But in a more interesting level, um, in a lot of ways, that's considered the birth of the studio system. Because what ended up happening was so many mon pond small theaters ended up going out of business. A lot of them that were minority owned, owned by women. And essentially, you know, the money and the powers that be on the West Coast got together to buy a lot of the theaters and create the distribution system um, that became the Hollywood uh, system. Um, now, obviously, 100 years later, uh, we're in a similar but yet different thing, right? The cinemas are shut down. Movies aren't getting the distribution. I mean, you have now, you know, Mulan is, you know, coming out uh, for $30 on, on, on demand because Disney's thrown their arms up and says, okay, we got to get the movie out this year and it's not going to happen in the theater. I mean, James, being such an ardent believer in the fact that the theater experience is part of what the cinema experience is, what changes do you, whether it's positive or negative, see on the horizon? Well, my concerns are, it's interesting, I don't have a concern about the cinema if the chains can financially survive. And I'm going to it's a very, very simple thought experiment I'll give to you, to you and to your viewers. If I said to you, you there's a COVID-19 vaccine tomorrow, or there's uh, monoclonal antibodies, if you get the, the disease, we can help you out, and that's not that big a deal. 
Do you want to still stay home? I'm going to say right now that if I get a vaccine or this antibody therapies and COVID goes away or gets better, the idea of me staying home makes me want to kill myself. The minute that stuff happens, I'm going to the sushi bar. I'm going to the movies. I'm going to the opera. I'm going to a museum. I'm going to a Yankee game. I'm doing everything I can to get the fuck out of my house. So if you tell me, oh, the theater experience is not going to survive, I'm going to tell you that if the theater chains can financially wait it out, that once this bullshit passes, and it will pass, people are want to go, going to want to get out of their houses. I don't want to stay. The worst thing you can tell me right now is I got to stay home. I understand that I'm staying home. I got my couch here. I'm going to throw up if I sit on it any longer. So in that sense, I have optimism. I have terrible pessimism, however, about the atavistic nature of the movie business. And I feel that because of fear, because of costs, that the risks, inherent risks in the cinema, where in essence, we have to invent a new product every single time out, and we don't know what the result is gonna be exactly, because it's a collaborative process, that they try to make it into widgets even more. So what you have is Wonder Woman 7 and the Avengers 96 and Spider-Man 52 and Star Wars 98. And then maybe they make a profit, but it's a long-term killer because the cinema loses its cultural relevance. Now you're saying to me, what are you talking about? If I say to you, I'm going to make a monophory camera films. You know exactly what I'm doing. You know what that movie is. For those who don't, it's The Godfather, pretty famous. That movie was made in 1972. If somebody says, I'm going to make a monophory camera films in the newspaper column, if somebody says, play it again, Sam, even though he never says that line in the movie, we know it's Casablanca. If I say, Rosebud, you know what it is. Can you do it for any line of dialogue from Avatar? The cultural relevance of movies is slipping. And that happens when the line of thought is only about what is profitable and largely profitable, not just profitable, but hugely profitable. So my argument would be that the cinema needs to make an investment in certain movies that aren't immediate IP huge hits instantly, instantly discardable as well as digestible because it maintains a broad-based interest in the art form and it maintains the cultural relevance of the product, the content, which is a word I hate. So I have a pessimism about the artistry of the cinema and about the machinery of it, but I have an optimism about our continuing need for it. So hopefully our optimism about the continuing need for it will prove so much more correct and so much more powerful that it will vanquish the pessimistic side of me, which sees now that even the streamers are trying to make the blockbusters. I think that we need new voices, interesting voices. When I was on the, uh, heading up the jury of the Marrakesh Film Festival, half the films were directed by women most of the films were directed by people from Egypt or Morocco or from 
Lebanon, I mean, all over the world. And I would say every single movie I saw had at least something of major value. And 50% of the movies, of the 20 movies I saw, were flat out excellent, which is a huge number, all from different voices. So the voices are there, out there in the world, to be heard. From, and you've heard this now, it seems like it's a hip thing to say, but it's true, from women, from people of color, from all over the world. The question is, will we have a machinery that allows it? So that's the struggle I'm in. I don't know which will win. Well, it's a very valid point. And the thing you said there, I think is very important is the experiential aspect of like going to the theater, right? The idea of when people are ready to come back out, you know, maybe that's something that happens in droves and creates, you know, another renaissance of people being able to watch this art form together. Ask yourself, do you want to still stay home? You want to still be in lockdown? You want to stay home? You want to sit in the car? You know what? I don't want to go out. The thought of it makes me want to throw up. Look at the jazz age. Now, maybe that was the result of World War I, and those factors are obviously huge. But the pandemic, I'm sure, unleashed this kind of joyous partying that when it ended, it had to be unleashed. I think something like that might be coming. That's a good point. That's a good point. What about, what about you, my friend, Anthony? What's your, you, you see things along the same lines? Similar, I think some of the pressure, whether intended or forced on the uh, industry where it's not gonna, going to the cinema is not going to be how everybody's making their money. There's gonna be a little bit of a shift, but I, I kind of think we're gonna be still going to the cinema. I, I think it's gonna be for smaller windows and I think it's gonna be um, in a very different way. But for some crazy reason, I kind of feel like the kinds of movies that we want to see in the cinema might very well be the actual events that people choose to go see, whether it only be for 17 days or 24 days or 45 days in those windows. And then I'm kind of hopeful from that um, and, and uh, you know, a positive outcome from there. It, it, it stays with legs and doesn't die. I, I, I'm a little nostalgic and really, really would you know, miss the cinema experience. And I, I, I just got to believe that there's a way that um, we'll still be seeing movies in the cinema just like we have been. Just the well, kind I of movies that are out right now or, 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 or you know, or can be played on the small screen and they will, but it doesn't mean people don't want to go to the theater like Jimmy's talking about. We all want to go to the theater. No, I think you're right. And I agree with both of you. I think, I think there is going to be, you know, a wave. And the question is, can the wave be sustainable of people wanting to get out and be like, oh, my God, I'm out. Let's go. You know, that's exactly as you're saying, James. And I agree 100 I mean, percent. We hope it all goes there. I think for a large part, it will. Um, it's just a question if we can keep it. Um, uh, now, so, James, just a, another question, because people are, a lot of people are very curious about your process, questions that are coming in. Um, you've been very clear about your, your process as far as imagery goes in terms of preparing yourself and preparing your, the people that you work with. Do you feel the same way about literature? Do you approach certain novels or literature the same way in terms of, you know, uh, researching for a character or story? 
Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not as uh, well read as I wish I were. Uh, it's impossible to be, I have seen basically every movie ever and to read every book ever. But I rely very, very heavily on, on literature. Literature and opera too. Uh, I kind of think that one of the difficult aspects, you know, I, I don't regret making the choices I made in, you know, the college I went to and USC was great, USC film school was great. But what I enjoyed at USC film school, ironically, was the first two years of my education, which was essentially a broad liberal arts education, where I had to read all the books by Dostoevsky, where I had to read uh, Apuleius's The Golden Ass, and where I had to read the Aeneid, where I had to read the Odyssey, where I had to read the Iliad. And, the, and the, I came to Shakespeare, for example, fairly late. Um, I came to Shakespeare after seeing Measure for Measure in Central Park in the summer of 2001, so I would have been 31. I mean, I had read Macbeth and Hamlet in school, but uh, I became obsessed with Shakespeare after seeing that play because the dilemma, the narrative and character dilemma spelled out was so brilliant that I realized all of life's dramatic questions could be answered in Shakespeare. So do I use literature? I use it a ton. Uh, during the lockdown, I will say I've gone back and sort of done a, a great books class for myself, going back and reading a lot of you know, great books that I never read. So uh, I just finished reading Goethe's book, Elective Affinities, for example, which I thought was fantastic, a very sort of early novel, very dark novel. Incredible. I read uh, Dante's Divine Comedy, which I'd never read. I'm ashamed to admit, but I, I finally got that done. But then you realize there's a certain emptiness to it, right? Because you know, it sounds very pretentious. I'm talking about these amazing books, but you realize you can't have a discourse with yourself. So you're reading Dante and you can't really talk about it with anybody because, you know, my 10 year old is not going to read Dante. So I'm kind of doing it for myself. And all right, that has limited pleasures. But you do use them as a resource because they have insights into character that even the best cinema can't have. And you realize that something like the great films of Lucino Visconti steal very heavily from Dostoevsky, for example. So yes, because the psychological insight is much greater than any cinema can afford. Um, in, a, in, a, in cinema, essentially all characterization is a form of pop psychology. You know, uh, it's like Rosebud is pop psychology, right? You know, he, didn't have a childhood, so he has these problems now. It's sort of pop psychology. But in Brothers Karamazov, or Crime and Punishment, he can go into, in Crime and Punishment, Dostoevsky can spend so much time talking about Raskolnikov's interiority uh, that the cinema can't do. And it can't afford you what you hope is a greater uh, empathy or understanding for a character's predicament. So uh, the answer is, yeah. I, rely on it heavily. You know, for Two Lovers, I relied on a novella by Dostoevsky called White Nights for the essence of Joaquin's character, for example. Uh, we Own the Night was very much stolen, as you know, from Henry IV, parts one and two, the Shakespeare plays, Prince Hal and Hotspur and Bolingbroke, um, and, uh, and so on and so forth. And the Immigrant was actually inspired a lot by opera, um, Puccini opera, and which is why I wound up using Puccini's music as the score. Uh, and Lost City of Z is flat out based on a book. Ad Astra is flat out based on Joseph Campbell and on Moby Dick and on, of course, Conrad's Heart of Darkness and Francis Coppola's movie of Apocalypse Now. So literary uh, inspirations are central. They're central, really are.
Well, it's a, it's a very important point because as we do always tell, you know, young filmmakers out there, storytelling is the number one tenant and storytelling, if you feel like you need to strengthen your, your ropes on storytelling, just read, just read great classic fiction and that'll help you. A brief thing, if I may, Doug, uh, if I'm talking too much, I apologize. I guess it's because I haven't been getting out at all. <laughs> um, with regards to Measure for Measure, the Shakespeare play that I was mentioning, which I saw in uh, Central Park, Shakespeare in the Park, which is a great tradition. So you've got that story, right? Which is essentially a guy in 14th or 15th century Venice uh, fathers a child out of wedlock. A very ambitious young judge wants to sentence that guy to death. Now, in, by 15th century Venice, it, it was technically you could do it, but nobody ever got sentenced to death. But this judge is very, very ambitious, and he's going to sentence this guy to death. So the guy who's going to be sentenced to death has a sister who comes to the judge and says, please, please don't kill my brother for this. Nobody gets killed anymore for having a child, out of, fathering a child out of wedlock. And the judge looks at her and says, okay, I will, I will save your brother, but you have to fuck me first. Okay, the sister is a nun. So now, all of a sudden, an easy narrative question becomes a very difficult narrative question. Do I sacrifice my body before God, which is everything that I believe in, to save my brother? That becomes both an external dilemma, how do I save my brother, but an internal struggle for the nun. That's great storytelling. That's great character. To be or not to be. He doesn't walk on the stage. That most famous line in all of dramaturgy. Well, he doesn't walk on the stage and go to be and then walk off. He says to be or not to be. He's questioning himself. It's an interior monologue. That's the soliloquy, interior struggle, interior, internal conflict. Michael Corleone in The Godfather is torn by internal conflict. That's my family, Kay, that's not me. But he has to save his father. That's storytelling. And that's the tradition that has really been begun since the beginning of time because we need to create these myths for ourselves and each other in order to survive as a species. Anyway. That's well said. I mean, we always, we, we literally always try and, you know, hit over the head the idea of, you know, know the classics and no storytelling. That's the most important thing before, you know, you think that you know how to shoot an action sequence. Yeah. You know, that's, that's, that's the key of it. Um, uh, and, and, you know, something that's been brought up before, and I know Anthony and I are big believers in this, and we always try to let younger people understand this, the concept of how movies are made in the van. And one day I'm going to do a whole show about how it's about the van without the van. I'll tell you, I'm not going to name any names, but I once worked on a movie where the director refused to ride in the van with the people running around. And I was like, how are we going to make this movie? The guy's not in the van without him being in the van. How are we going to really know what's happening or what, what's like, what, what's everyone's backstory? You know, I mean, just that sense of camaraderie that is created, you know, in the riding around of the van as such a great way to, and, and I think, and I've actually have an amazing photo collage going of Katagas taking power naps and, <laughs> and different van trips on different movies. I knew the 
I knew the the van photos were gonna come. I got a couple of you, Doug. Should we share our screen? No, right no, now? I'm not gonna share. I'm not gonna put them up there. I'm just Do letting people know that we've spent we've spent 20 years in the vans together. You know, and the importance of a not only talking about the movie, but being able to really get to know the people that you're working with by spending all this time riding around, looking at locations, traveling at nauseum. I mean, you know, you know, from one place to the next, but van filmmaking is 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 really interesting and the reason i bring, also bring that up is because it's the first place that anthony and i together learned about james's incredible knowledge about any movie that's ever been made and the director who directed that movie um and then we used to have to play this game which was stump james trying naming a movie uh to see if and the only reason i bring it up is because Someone, it must be somebody that you've actually worked with, said, this is for James. Please ask him who directed the 1987 film Hard Ticket to Hawaii. So th this has got to be someone you've worked with who decided that they were going to do some research and come here and stump you. I know that's, uh, you know, that I'm, I'm, kind of, I'm kind of coming at you from left field, but, you know, they, they were very nice about putting this question in there. Well, that's nice. Hard Ticket to Hawaii. 1987. Sounds pretty grade Z. <laughs> Probably. I mean, that's, it's not, it can't be grade C, D, or E. Yeah, it's, it's way below that. I mean, this, this might have actually been a movie that, you know, that, that no one ever, ever saw. There might have even never been a poster from the movie for you to memorize. I have no idea. But um, can we know who's in it? Uh, you know. Can we get a hint? I, 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 can't, I don't know who's in it. They, they just sent that question. I figured it was a friend of yours. But I wanted to get into it. Who do we know who's in it? I have no idea. Anyone out there, whoever asked that question, tell us who was in it. Of course, uh, you know, I could probably find out myself, but then that would be cheating. We don't want to do that. But I actually think I know the answer to this. But uh, this is like your David Blaine technique where you like deflect for a little bit and then all of a sudden you come like, and then everyone's like, whoa! Well, because I, I think I know it, but I'm not, I'm not. I'm not 100% sure, well, but I think, it's, I think it's part of these, like really, I think it's part of the sort of grade Z tradition. From, and he's from the he's he's What's that? Uh, I'm gonna guess if I could, but I would guess Andy Sedaris, who did a bunch of these like cheesy movies, but I don't know for sure. Well, here I could give, is it, oh, it is definitely cheesy looking. Oh, it's great. Oh my Z. God, it's Andy Sedaris. You are right. <laughs> See, this is this is how you if you live in if you live around James Gray long enough. I don't. I think in all the years, maybe two movies. I'd like to think I was able to stump you on, and everyone has to know that's like with. And this is, and a lot of this is pre 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 like IMDb, right? I mean, even with IMDb, we do it now. But before, we used to have to kind of think of movies we knew. Now, now it's a little bit more of a cheat because we can go really obscure. But okay, I have it right here. Hard Ticket Hawaii. Andy Sedaris, whoever asked uh, that question. Great Z director, he casts a lot of like Playboy Playmates and that kind of thing. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yep, Donna Speed. Yeah, these are all Playboy Playmates. Yep, yep. All right, so. This uh, is remarkably done of, uh, of, of uh, Swanick. Swanick in between lighting setups and the camera team, they'd actually be uh, whipping them by Jimmy the whole time. This is, uh, is a walk down memory lane. Yeah. What was the one that you liked best, Doug? That you started laughing. Oh, I know what it was. Zorro what? the Gay Blade. 
Oh yeah, yeah, Zorro the Gay Blade. Which is uh, Peter Medak, by the way. Yeah, uh, yeah, so everyone should know this about James is that he is a walking IMDB search engine uh, for movies, predominantly, what, what, what is it, 70s, 80, 80, what, what's the year and on? Anything up until 1995. And I, I just want people to know that does not mean I'm not asking people to start peppering me with questions to ask James about movies. I just wanted to get that one out there so people uh, understand that this is... Oh, you can't do that. It's my son's birthday today. I'm going to have to go in a minute. No, no, I'm kidding. We're not doing that. Well, I do know. I saw, I saw your lovely wife post that it was his birthday, and I wanted to make sure that we are not encroaching on Rafi's cake-eating session. Um, uh, that's coming soon enough. Well, but, but listen, in, in all seriousness, uh, you know, I don't, time, time is a valuable thing. I don't want to keep you both. This has been an amazing conversation. Um, a lot of people have been peppering me already with, you know, questions, uh, you know, just like saying, oh my God, I'm learning so much. This is great. So we, we always like that. that, that that's been a great thing. Um, I really, really appreciate both of you, my two dear friends, as I said, my filmmaking family coming on here and, and, and enter, you know, joining me in this, in this uh, endeavor. Um, and uh, I thank you both. Anthony, thank you. James, thank you very much for coming and playing. Um, I want to just let everyone know, and it's probably for all of our uh, people uh, who follow us, it, the information will go out tonight. But next Thursday, August 13th, we are going to have a DP session with Rachel Morrison Greg Frazier and Natasha Breyer. So we're going to have those three DPs coming on and they're going to be talking about life and work balance in this post-COVID world. And we'll be interesting to see what Greg has to say because he's currently shooting with your good friend, Matt, in yeah. London on the Batman set, right? So uh, Greg is back and he's, he's, he's in it uh, on a studio movie. So, um, you know, and, and Rachel has... Uh, she was about to direct the movie before the lockdown, and she'll probably talk about uh, where that movie uh, is right now, if it's coming back up. I don't know, but we'll learn more from them. And that's going to be at 3 p.m. I know it's a strange time uh, for us, but um, it's because Greg is in London, and we want to get this live all around. So that's going to be 3 p.m. on August 13th. That's the next session, everybody. And once again, James, Anthony, thank you so much. This has been an absolute pleasure. Oh, you're welcome. All right. Both you guys, much love. And uh, please be safe. And I'll speak to you both individually within the next 24 hours, I'm sure. Much love. Much okay. love. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Happy birthday, Rafi. Yes, give them all our love. <laughs>